This is The Connection, a Dirty Free Hub podcast connecting gravel cyclists to where they ride through short stories about culture, history, people, places, and lands. Welcome to The Connection by Dirty Free Hub. I'm Forrest Radarian. So we've got Kate Boyle back on the show today, and we have more of your listener-generated questions around Leave No Trace. Kate Boyle is the co-founder of Bikepacking Roots, and she's their education director. And the questions that we've been fielding are about the Love Where You Ride campaign, as well as Leave No Trace. As a heads up, this episode is going to be focused more on bikepacking as well as racing. Uh, But the questions will definitely apply to Leave No Trace in the front country and anytime a cyclist is out in the back country. Given that, Kate, let's go ahead and dive in with our first question. So let's shift gears a little bit now. And these next few questions kind of begin to go into the world of racing. And especially Mm -hmm. given the events that have been happening on the still occurring Tour Divide right now. And I think this could go for bikepacking. I think this could go for gravel racing, um, just really any backcountry mm-hmm. competitive event. So we had someone wrote right in, Andy Levito, and uh, they asked, cool idea. So here's my question. As a racer or race organizer, how can we minimize impacts to small towns and to other trail users? How do you decide when to do an ITT? maybe versus participating in a grand depart event. It would be interesting to hear about maybe even the decision that Bikepacking Roots made about discouraging racing on the Western Wildlands route and maybe how that differs from something like the Great Divide mountain bike route tour divide. Yeah, so there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I think that the question about doing a mass start versus an ITT You know, like these events do have max numbers of people. Um, And like in the instance of Tour Divide, the communities along it are at this point, like they're aware of the race. They know when it is. They're expecting that to happen. Um, But I think that like suddenly when I would start to think about an ITT instead is like, is there something else going that's making, that's already straining this community or the communities that I'm riding through or the landscape I'm riding through. And so that could be a fire, you know, like maybe things are still open, but there is a wildfire and the community is already dealing with that. Like maybe having a whole group of people riding through during that is really hard on them. Something I just, I, this is, (laughs) Very far from an ultra race, but I was about to do a big mountain enduro race this next weekend. And they canceled the race because of the flooding around Yellowstone that's happening. And there's not flooding at Big Sky, uh, Mm -hmm. but the communities surrounding Yellowstone are really impacted by the flooding because of all the people who have been evacuated from Yellowstone and the surrounding communities like Cook City and Red Lodge that have had really devastating flooding to homeowners and residents. And so now Bozeman, Jackson Hole, those places are kind of expanding in order to work within that crisis. And so this race organizer was like, well, we're canceling this event. Like there's this other disaster happening. And so, Hmm. you know, like with bike pack racing, it's a little harder because the governing and organization is so much more grassroots and loose, but that is a situation where like 
Tour Divide started right before this flooding. But if you were thinking about an ITT, you could be like, oh, there's all this snow and flooding. Like these communities are stressed. Like they don't need me racing through right now. Maybe I'll wait a week. And, and so I think that that's, and then COVID is also a good example. You know, we're like, (laughs) uh, do you, is COVID on the rise in these locations? Like is your, is a whole group of people coming through like a strain on the community or maybe one person in another month is better. So like, I don't think there's a hard and fast answer, but those are the things I'm thinking about. It's just like, how is my presence and the presence of this group of people impacting these communities? In general, it's really good thing for bike packers to come through communities, but there are times when it's not helpful and it's just adding strain. I think another question within that one was about bikepacking routes' decision to not have racing on our routes right now. And so yeah. that is, yeah. And I, the big one was the Western Wildlands route, um, where, or at least from what people were like, why can't we race that? It's like the parallel route to the divide. And so the with the Western Wildlands route, well, I guess first, big picture, we develop a route and we want these roots to start as like kind of an organic growth there. We don't go from zero to a hundred people coming through in one day so that communities who maybe have never seen a bike packer before can start to interact with them be like, okay, who is this weird person that I've never seen doing something that sounds ridiculous to me based on where I live? You know, like there are places and communities in the United States that probably at first glance think that bikepacking would be a ridiculous way to spend your time. And therefore they might be suspicious of you <laughs> and that's fine. But like our goal when we're bikepacking is to show people that like, we're nice. We want to support their economies. We really appreciate them sharing their space and their, their land because to them. A lot of them, it is to a lot of them. It is their land that we are, we respect their lifestyles and livelihoods and we're just happy and grateful to be there and we're not going to be, have a negative impact. And so for that to start to happen over years of people just riding it at their own will of when they're out to ride it, hopefully we're cultivating these communities along the routes that are realizing that bikepacking and bikepackers are pretty cool and they want them there. Um, and we felt that if we first made a route and then had a race on it the next year, that there would be, challenges with that because with racing comes people being in a rush, um, people potentially feeling entitled to different spaces and examples that are happening on like the tour divide now where there's now like a $30 cleaning fee at some of the hotels as of just last week, because bikepackers who've been out in the mud and rain and snow are filthy and leaving mud and rain and snow (laughs) in their hotel rooms. Mm. And so that sort of thing is like, what I think happens more in racing because there's more of a sense of urgency and like this end goal that people are focused on and it's all about time. And so by not having something being about time, we're hoping that people are taking the time to not be in a rush and to be really courteous and grateful tourists essentially. And to take the time to interact with people too, you know, and to smile and be like, Hey, I'm really happy to be here. And I'm like, I need to get to the next place. How far is it? You know, as maybe this route does become familiar and other routes in general that cyclists are out there using would it be appropriate to see them transition over to offering race events. Yeah. So I, I do think that on some routes that's totally appropriate in the case of the Western wildlands route, we, 
across Navajo Nation through a partnership and an agreement that we worked for a number of years on with the um, leadership at Navajo Nation to have permission to cross um, the Navajo reservation. And one of the rules that they have is that there's no travel at night and there are only very specific places that you can sleep. And so as soon as there's a restriction on no riding at night and very specific places that you can sleep, that makes racing in the ultra racing format really hard. And I think that we like Kurt and I having been a part of the ultra racing community, we just don't trust that on a route that long where it's so hard to predict where you're going to be that people would actually say stop at an hour past sunset and wait until sunrise to cross. And unfortunately, like, and there's, we don't have a way to control or police that. And we don't want to, (laughs) that's not the business we're in. And our priority is to have a lasting and positive relationship with Navajo nation that like enables bike packers to get to experience like their hospitality on their terms. The next question comes more as an observation. And I think that there are two questions that are kind of implied by this observation, or at least two questions that popped into my head that came out of this. So we had someone who wrote in and said, the Tour Divide race started last Friday and the weather has been less than ideal. The parks in Canada asked the race to send out racers, uh, to send out racers in waves this year to help spread folks out. Uh, and this person wrote in, found this interesting. And then over the weekend, a number of folks called for search and rescue near Fernie uh, as they weren't prepared for the cold and rainy weather. The Fernie SAR group posted that's a long way between the different shelters once you leave the area. So they are asking for cyclists to be prepared. And then as you brought up a little bit earlier, Kate, about the hotels and the cleaning mm-hmm. fees, apparently some have moved to do a $30 charge because there were some messes that were being left behind. And all of this made this writer feel sad that folks uh, either weren't being prepared or were leaving uh, a negative impact upon those communities. And they did bring up that this is just one event. And it of course was not mm-hmm. all of the cyclists or nor is it representative of any back or of all backcountry cyclist users. Uh, but as events are popular, uh, maybe this writer felt that people are moving so quickly, they forget how their impact affects others. So mm-hmm. I think from this observation, kind of two questions come up to me at least. And the first one is what role do we need to take as backcountry cyclists in endurance events like this? Like what should we be doing? What's our mindset? How do we want to portray ourselves? Mm -hmm. I think that, so when I think about backcountry riding and the places we're going or the amount of time we're out, a lot of times weather forecasts just aren't reliable, whether you're in the mountains or a new location that you don't know even how predictable the weather is, or you're out for an amount of time, you know, like the tour divide, they can't get a weather forecast for the, for a month. (laughs) Like that's just impossible. And so I think that we just need to be heading out with the gear that we know that we can take care of ourselves, the conditions that could happen. And it's not that our average to happen because average right now is probably not 
three feet of snow, but it is, <laughs> it is definitely not abnormal for it to snow in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming in June. That happens every year. And so in that way, like that could happen. And so people heading out on whether it's a race or a backcountry ride or a tour, like just need to be heading out, understanding that even if they're leaving with this expectation of what's probably going to happen, we still need to be riding with the gear to manage what could happen. And then there's this step beyond where like right in the instance that just due to the timing of this conversation, Tour Divide is an example. Like it's also happening concurrently with like some pretty abnormal weather, like the, at least the extent of the rain and the extent of the snow. It's not like a snowstorm. It was like a big one with endless rain that didn't stop for days and days. And so with that, then just people having, whether you're bikepacking non-competitively, but on a route with a goal or racing with a time goal, like we just owe it to both ourselves and our own safety, but also to the people who then volunteer to come and rescue us if we need rescuing to have that kind of awareness of changing conditions, both the environment and our own conditions. Like, am I getting colder? Am I losing mobility in my hands? Like, am I no longer able to take care of myself? Am I noticing like these signs of like whatever the risk of the environment is, whether it's hypothermia or heat stroke, you know? And so and having then the wherewithal to stop before you're actually in a place where you need help. And that includes turning around. And like, I've been paying attention to Tour Divide. I have a number of friends racing and I'm friends with the people who have been putting it on or providing the tracking. And like, I've been seeing people turning around. And so like, we hear about the rest of the people who are needing rescuing because of maybe not making that call in time or maybe not being quite ready for the challenges that ended up happening unexpectedly. But there are also people who are demonstrating that they stopped and they bought these for bikepackers, ridiculously huge layers or like tents, you know, and like, that's great. And so I think that that's what we need to do is to focus on that being pro proactive and remembering like we're riding the like self-sufficiency piece is like that we're taking care of ourselves. It's not that we're, plowing forward by all at any cost <laughs> with just what we have. Like it's okay to stop and get a hotel or to stop and buy more gear or to turn around and call the trip it and start over next week or even in another year. And I know that part can be really devastating because of the amount of resources we put in, but like what's the most devastating is losing someone's life or having some sort of lasting injury and putting other people at risk in order to go out into environments that are inherently dangerous to be conducting search and rescues in. And so for the second kind of question that popped in my head from these observations, leave no trace is often focused on the backcountry, but can we maybe also say that it applies to being in the front country and the communities are either passing through and staying in, or maybe, mm -hmm. If you are, you know, camping in an area, I'm doing a bunch of day rides from a spot and you're seeing a community, mm -hmm. does it apply here? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where, I mean, leave no trace. Their last principle, though not least important, is be considerate of other visitors. And I think that includes like other people there, whether they're not visiting, maybe they're residents. And then 
they also have a set of front country principles, like the way that they adapt their seven principles to the front country. And our positive impact bikepacking practices is really taking that idea of like, yes, we can do all these things like bury our poop in a hole and pee in the right place and not build fires, but we could also be leaving these really negative impacts on the services and the communities that we're riding through, depending on how we're behaving when we're in town resupplying. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to just like treating the towns and the services, how you want people to treat like your business or your town when they come to visit. Like I know that at this point, tourism is in a lot of places and we want people to come with like a sense of gratitude for us being there and for offering them a space to come visit, like whatever makes our home really special to us. And so when I think about these, whether it's dirty hotel rooms or maybe not paying for a meal or their food or like leaving a mess somewhere or sleeping illegally somewhere, like ultimately I think that it actually, it has a negative impact on like that community's view of bikepacking and their reception to bike packers. And then, and I think that spreads like when that suddenly reaches bigger administration and government or land managers, then suddenly like that dirty hotel room can turn into like, Oh, well, I don't think we want bike packers like in this whole entire national forest. Like they have this bad reputation as like kind of being cheap and dirty, you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's really like, I, I think that it comes down to that bigger picture of like, who are you representing and like what, like it's not going to cost you very much time to just slow down for a minute and be respectful and grateful. All right. So last question here. Are there any organizations that you maybe recommend that people can give to in order to offset impacts from cyclists on the environment or wildlife or just to help contribute to leave no trace in some way, or maybe what can people do to help spread the word? Yeah. So I mean, when I read this, I was like, wow, there, I mean, there are a lot of organizations that are doing work for the environment and wildlife. Um, and so I think that like to keep it pretty straightforward about this is like when we're thinking about offsetting environmental and like impacts as cyclists, we want to be just like doing our best to minimize them. And so supporting the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics, I think is a great way to help support education of Leave No Trace. And then supporting Bikepacking Roots and Dirty Free Hub are both nonprofits who are doing the work to educate. And like, you can share the Love Where You Ride campaign, share these podcasts, like all of these small actions just like help spread that. There are Love Where You Ride stickers that have a fun QR code and you can get some of those stickers from us and place them in different places. And then people will be able to access the content. Kate, you are awesome. Thank you for (laughs) uh, coming on the show today and fielding just a number of awesome questions that different users brought forward that we can reflect on and act on. And uh, once again, this is Kate Boyle. She's the co-founder of Bikepacking Roots, and she's also the education and events director for the organization. Kate, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And I will say that I remembered um, with pooping in the woods, you also need to poop 200 yards from water. (laughs) Very important. That's super important. Uh, Everyone, 200 yards from water. After that, I was like, I forgot that. That's so important. (laughs) 
It's like bury it and keep it away from water. Those are like the key things. <laughs> All right, everyone. That's it for The Connection today by Dirty Free Hub. I'm Forrest Radarian. Thanks for listening. Dirty Free Hub is a nonprofit organization fueled by your generous contributions. Find us at dirtyfreehub.org.